thank you, team. I'll ask you to turn with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we will be considering verses 4 to verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to verse 10. And I appreciate the way uh, Matt led us in corporate prayer, both praying corporately and leading us as a church in prayer, because it helps to emphasize what we'll be talking about today what it means to be the church. Let me start by reflecting back to the first church I ever pastored. It was a church in Jamaica. It was small and struggling, but it also exerted a tremendous influence on me before I even became a pastor. It was the church that God used to call me into pastoral ministry. More significantly, God used that church to keep me in the faith. Imagine, for a while, a lonely single guy far from home. That was my first experience, being away from my family in the Philippines. To make matters worse, I was burnt out from work and church life, and I was somewhat disillusioned with the church. And I was faced with all kinds of temptation in Kingston. I kid you not, a former girlfriend of one of my coworkers was actually calling my apartment, offering to be my girlfriend, sight unseen. (laughs) Praise God for that small church. They accepted me despite my being a very different individual with a very different accent and they cared for me. They became my family, my refuge amidst the pressures confronting me, a haven of healing, a haven of rest and and restoration. And together, as a church, they strengthened me to serve God's purposes. They were, for me, the church in the best sense of the word. And my hope and prayer is that this affirmation on the church that we will be discussing would be more than just an affirmation, but a living reality as we become more and more fully a nurturing community of faith. So here's our affirmation that we need to live out. The universal church The community of believers in Christ is manifested in local churches throughout the world. A properly ordered local church is a community of persons who have confessed their faith in Christ by being immersed in Christian baptism and who, by their baptism, have committed themselves to one another as well as to Christ. Together, they seek to proclaim the gospel of Christ to build up each other as growing followers of Christ, to transmit the Christian faith to succeeding generations, and to worship God as his people called to be a distinct society in this world. Each local church is called to acknowledge Christ as Lord and head of the church, and to use their divinely given abilities and opportunities to make Christ known in their various communities. 
Each church needs to be served by two kinds of leaders. Some who carry out a ministry of teaching and governing, known in the Bible as elders, overseers, or pastors. And by the way, those are one and the same thing. An elder is a pastor, a pastor is an elder. And some who lead in the practical implementation of ministry, known in the Bible as deacons. You will note then that we are not a factory producing worship experience for your consumption. And we are certainly far more than a charitable, nonprofit soliciting organization. That's what the government thinks of us as, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. We are becoming a community of Christ-centered, gospel-shaped kingdom disciples whose authentic worship encompasses all of life and who live out the gospel in community. We seek to be a reproducing church that blesses others. And this text before us explains why these are our objectives as a congregation. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 up to verse 10. And I will be reading from the English Standard Version. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they, were, they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, we are Christ-centered because Jesus defines our identity and our expectations. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, as you come to Christ, to Jesus, that is the equivalent of saying we trust in him. He's the one who defines us. We are, through faith, united with Jesus Christ. That means in that union, all that is his is ours, including God's approval. Going further, chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 4, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. That's God's approval. In the sight of God chosen and precious, but there's also rejection rejected by men. We share both. 
And I make that point because Peter's readers were facing persecution. And he is encouraging them to stay faithful by reminding them that Jesus experienced the same rejection they were facing, and in fact, far more rejection than they were facing. And in saying that, Peter was trying to remind the believers, God is not punishing you when you suffer. Neither is he neglecting you. Peter would say, suffering is an an inescapable part of following Jesus. After all, Jesus' invitation to follow him is preceded by, if any man wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. But what Peter wants us to recognize is that the pain is worthwhile because we are coming to Jesus, God's chosen and precious son. And it is true, Jesus was rejected, but that did not change who he really was. The son of God incarnate, or in verse four it says, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. See, when you look at the cross, you realize that the cross was the ultimate rejection. This is man's final no to God. But amazingly, in that horrible rejection of God was God's means of exalting Jesus and accomplishing his plan to save us. That shameful cross was actually the pathway to Jesus' vindication at his resurrection. So that Peter is reminding us that it is not people who define reality, it is God who defines reality. It's not about people's opinions or even our personal feelings. It is what God says. And he says this because man's, he wants us to remember that we may live in a hostile society, but man's rejection does not change who we are in Jesus Christ. That's the basis of our identity. Who we are in Jesus. Who God says we are. And so now Paul begin, uh, Peter sorry, begins to flesh out our, our identity in verse 5. And notice it's not an individual identity. It is a corporate identity. He says in verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that through faith we are united with Christ who is the true temple. And because of that union with Christ, we as individual believers are being built up together into God's holy temple. And Peter can describe us as living stones because we have been made alive through the resurrection of Jesus, who is the living stone. That's what it means to be born again. We have been given the life of the living God. We are in relationship with him, with him who is the living stone and he Proceeds to describe Jesus further, a cornerstone 
chosen and precious, the one whom God had promised. So that Jesus is the sure foundation on whom our faith stands. And this call to follow Jesus isn't simply a call to suffer, that's part of it, but it is also a call to community. We are the church, God's holy temple, and it is God who is building us. In verse 5, it says, our being built up. It's passive to say that it is not us who are doing the building. It is God. It's what theologians and scholars call a divine passive. It is God who is building us. So that reflecting on this in light of 1 Peter chapter 1, we may be exiles in a hostile society, but we are not alone. We are built together as a community of faith founded on Jesus Christ, the chosen and precious cornerstone. Why is this important? Well, in 2020, before COVID, just before COVID, the church I was pastoring gave me a sabbatical. And so I had the chance to spend six weeks relaxing and writing on the book of Ephesians. And that was wonderful. But after a couple of weeks, I found it spiritually disorienting because I was disconnected from my congregation. It's not about control, and it's not because I wasn't in church. I was attending church services um, at different churches. I appreciated the music. I heard good preaching. But I was just passing through. I knew some people at the church, but I was disconnected. I wasn't embedded in the community that knew me, in the community that I loved and with whom I lived. And you see, that's what church membership is about. It is more than simply the ability to shape the future of the church. It is more than being able to be an officer. Those are good things. But church is about doing life together as we follow the true and living God. As Matt pointed out, God has chosen each one of us. And let's take it a step further. As living stones, God has designed each one of us to fill a specific role in his temple. In becoming members of Crestwick, we are submitting to God's call on our lives to be part of this local expression of his church. When I came to Crestwick, you extended a call to me, and I appreciated it, and I accepted it with the determination to be a full member participating in this body. But I hope you realize I'm not the only person who's called to this church. Each one of us is called to this church. And I hope that you are attending this church on a regular basis because you believe and recognize that God means for you to be a part of this body. And it's not because Crestwick is awesome. Neither is it because Crestwick needs you or me. A friend of mine at my former church 
took a break from leading a ministry at that church. And after that year, she came back and said, oh my goodness, I thought it's not about the church needing me. Actually, my year away told me that I needed the church. And that's what it's about. You need the church. But not in a needy, self-centered way. God puts us in the church so that we serve others. And as we are ministering to others, that ministry to others ministers to us. Because there are a hundred other people with that disposition serving and pouring into us. And yes, I know, it's hard to be in church. If you've been in church for a significant amount of time, you will have come across people who are annoying, disturbing, difficult to get along with. That's me. (laughs) I understand. We are imperfect people making up a flawed church. And if you think you've found the perfect church, I ask you not to join it because your presence will make it an imperfect church. (laughs) Best stay where you are. (laughs) Because chapter 2, verse 5 comforts us. We are being built up as a spiritual house. See, God isn't going to stop until he has made us into a dwelling fit for him. We are a spiritual house because the Holy Spirit dwells in and amongst us. Do you realize the privilege that we enjoy? That the sovereign Lord of the universe, whom heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain, condescends to dwell with us, to be present with us. And this is what makes the church glorious. Regardless of our imperfections, the mere fact that God is with us by His Spirit makes us a wonderful place to be. And the better part of it is that He is transforming us and empowering us to serve His purposes. And that's why Peter moves on and describes us to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As priests, we have the privilege of drawing near to God, and therein lies the wonder of gathered worship. It's not about how well the musicians play or how great the voices are and how, or how you and I feel while we're singing because we're not entertaining each other. What we are doing in our gathered worship is precisely this. We are offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And while we strive for excellence in everything we do, it is not our excellence that makes us acceptable. You notice Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. However many mistakes we make and how, however flat our tones are, 
and I'm not naming names, our worship is acceptable to God. In fact, I dare say God is pleased with our worship because Jesus is our mediator. He has cleansed us with his blood. He has given us access into God's presence as his adopted children. So as David pointed out to me earlier while the kids were jamming away, we are making a joyful noise to the Lord. And he is pleased because it is the worship of his children. And you see, that is what makes us gospel-shaped disciples who engage in authentic worship in every aspect of life. See, that is the rubric that should transform everything we do. We don't just worship on Sunday morning from 10.30 to 12. Worship is all of life. Our identity as God's holy priesthood means that we should consider our daily activities as acts of worship to God because being holy means that we have been set apart for God, by God, for His glory. And so understand this. As you fulfill your God-given callings in society, you are offering to God acceptable worship. We're not just working to pay off debt or stave off boredom. We are serving King Jesus, giving him glory. And the better part of this, you may wonder, why are they spiritual sacrifices? Well, because we're not doing them in our own strength. We are offering them by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Christ. It is a Trinitarian service. We are offering it to the Father through the mediation of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then Peter moves on. Peter cites Isaiah 28, 16 and Psalm 118, 22. I think it's flashed there or not. Okay, no worries. Oh, there. <laughs> He is showing that our identity as God's temple fulfills God's promises in the Old Testament. That's verse 6 and verse 7. And he cites the Old Testament and the way Jesus fulfills the promises of God in order to remind us that God is able to keep his promises. And to a people under persecution, that was meant to be comfort to reassure them that although you are facing the hostility of, culture, of the culture around you, God hasn't forgotten about you. God is still in control. He is accomplishing his purposes, and you can trust him. We can trust him to accomplish his purposes, even when everything looks bleak and we feel beleaguered. He's encouraging and challenging us to trust in Jesus in the face of man's rejection. Because if we trust in Jesus, we will never be put to shame. Look at verse 7. This is why I use the, AS, the English Standard Version. So the honor is for you who believe. That's the promise. We will be vindicated. We will be honored when Christ returns. 
our faith in him will be validated. But those who don't believe in Jesus will be condemned. Notice verse 8. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And, and I want to make it clear. If you're here, or for all of us, actually, the way you and I respond to Jesus determines not just our life today. It determines our eternal destiny. If you trust him, you will be saved. You will be honored when Christ returns. If you reject him, you are damned. Not just for today, but for all eternity. And so we urge you to bow the knee to Jesus. And Peter's point here in verse 8 is that even Jesus' rejection and man's unbelief are under God's sovereign plan. Man's rebellion does not frustrate God. Look at verse 8, the second part. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. It's a little cold, a uh, little scary. But what Peter is saying, that people's unbelief is part of God's providence. Please understand, it is not that God created people with the express intention of condemning them. It's not God saying, ah, I like you, I don't like you, I like you, I don't like you. No, that's not the way it goes. See, in the first place, all of us are condemned rebels because of Adam's sin. And you and I are responsible for our unbelief. We are free moral agents who freely use our liberty as humans to sin against God. That's what it means to be free moral agents. We willfully disobey. But here's the wonder of God's grace. The Holy Spirit graciously opens the blind eyes of those whom God chose before time began. He changes our hard hearts in order for us to be able to believe in Jesus. Those whom God didn't choose, choose to remain in their willful disobedience. And what Peter is doing is he's emphasizing the magnitude of God's grace toward us that enabled our faith. If you are here and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't make you better than the worst atheist. To be frank, I have known wonderful unbelievers who, make, who put me to shame. The only difference between him and me is that God has shown me grace and given me the righteousness of Jesus and enabled me to have faith. Because faith in Jesus is God's undeserved gift. And so Peter now moves on in verse 9 and verse 10 to contrast those who reject Christ with those who come to Christ in faith. Here's the privilege of being, of following Jesus Christ. He uses language taken from Exodus 19, verse 5 and verse 6. That's why Matt read that passage. 
We are God's chosen people. That's verse 9. But you are a chosen race. And let me make this point. We are chosen, although we are not choice. You know the distinction? God chose us despite who you and I are. You want to flesh it out in terms of Paul? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which we will be studying in a few weeks, Paul says, Consider your calling, brethren. Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world and the weak things of the world, those who are not. And he's talking about you and me. The foolish, the weak, the deplorable. He chose to love us despite our unworthiness. And his love for us is grounded in his unchanging, unconditional decision to love us. It is humbling, but it is also comforting. Because no matter how much you and I mess up, and we do, don't we? Because God chose to love us despite who we are, fully knowing our sinfulness, then God will not stop loving us because it is grounded in his unchanging choice to love us. And because he has chosen us to be his, we are now a royal priesthood. We are priests belonging to the king of the universe. That's why we talk about being kingdom disciples. Whatever our earthly citizenship may be, we are a chosen race and a holy nation. Because God in Christ has made us into citizens of heaven set apart for his purposes. Each one of us has dual citizenship. It is a definitive change of status for people like us who had no share whatsoever in the covenant promises of God. See, that's the grace of God towards us. We are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation. And from being a people condemned to death, we are now actually God's special possession. Notice, a people for his own possession. I I met a lady once who was from the Isle of Man. And back in the day when England was part of the EU, we had this conversation. It must have been about 20 years ago. She said, oh, I'm English, but I'm not part of the Union. Like, how, how's that? Well, I'm from the Isle of Man, and people from the Isle of Man are the Queen's own people. She carries an English passport, but the EU has nothing to do with her. They are the Queen's special people. She has taken it upon herself to take care of them. The EU can't touch them. Well, now they can, but (laughs) even then, they're not part of that union. They are special to the queen, just like the crown jewels are her prized possession. And similarly, do you realize that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, God considers you to be his own special 
possession, the object of his particular care and attention. So you may not have the direct line of the mayor or the prime minister. But God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, pays attention to you because you are his own special treasure. We may be exiles rejected by people who oppose our Savior. That doesn't matter. We are loved by the Lord of the universe. Now, before you break your arm trying to pat yourself on the back, God has blessed us with our status so that we might be his heralds. These are our credentials so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the same way that an ambassador has credentials, you and I are credentialed as God's chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and God's own special treasure so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Peter here is citing Isaiah 43, 20 to 21, which says that God formed his people to be his witnesses who proclaim his praise. That we proclaim the praises of God implies that our message is non-negotiable. So our affirmation of faith isn't a preference. It is something that we embrace because that's what God's word says. We, are not, we do not have the luxury of shaving off the uncomfortable parts. You see, heralds communicate the king's words. Nothing more and nothing less. And that's why I have Q&As with you, because we want you not only to understand what we're talking about, but also I want to make sure that what we're saying in the affirmation is actually consistent with what the Bible teaches. We have to proclaim God's word, nothing more, nothing less. And we also need to recognize that our message is not about us. Notice we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's about the greatness, the glory of God. We are declaring the incomparable majesty and greatness of the sovereign Lord of the universe. And that is our glorious purpose as a church. To proclaim the gospel in our worship and to worship God as we proclaim the gospel. And Lord willing, that would result in our becoming a reproducing church that blesses others. And in fact, I'm glad to say that we've begun to bless others by the grace of God. We've rented out our building to the Eritrean church, and we were able to send Alexandra to Australia. And if you're disappointed that she didn't give her report today, that's because she's giving it next week because what she's going to be talking about is going to serve the, per the sermon next week. So sorry if you're disappointed. Come back next week, or if you're not able to, stream it live. <laughs> All right. 
But I hope you realize that God has given us the privilege of telling others about him. And that should change our understanding of what it means to evangelize. See, we tend to think of evangelism as an unpleasant duty. And so many of us try to vomit the gospel as soon as we can to get it over with. But I hope you realize proclaiming the gospel is an act of delight in the true and living God. Put it in these terms. After my first year in seminary, I returned to Jamaica for the summer, and I had already met Joel, and we had started going out, and so I could not wait to tell my friends about Joel. As soon as we got in the car, I kid you not, they asked me, so RJ, how are you doing? Here's her pictures. <laughs> I want to introduce you to this girl I met. <laughs> because I wanted my friends to share my delight in her. And that's what evangelism is all about. It is talking about Jesus so our friends and loved ones would share our delight in him. As C.S. Lewis would put it, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. You see, that's what evangelism is. My delight in God isn't complete until I've told my friend about how wonderful Jesus is. Because this is the best news. It's better than the 90% off clearance sale where they're not out of stock <laughs> and they've got every size available, right? Jesus is better than that. And so I think we do need to ask ourselves and to ask the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts and show us why we do not delight in God the way we should. Why we don't have the attitude of the apostles when they were told to stop talking about Jesus. They said, well, we can't help but speak about the things we've seen and heard. I think we need to repent of taking God and his grace for granted. And some might object, well, okay, RJ, I get that. But this year has been so frustrating and disappointing, I find it difficult to delight in God when I'm struggling to believe that he is good. And I hear you. But I also want you to recognize the context of this passage. Peter is addressing Believers who are suffering hardship and persecution. In other words, he's talking to people in worse circumstances than we're facing. Because we need to recognize that our delight in God ought never to be based on our circumstances. As a matter of fact, the pain of our situation ought to drive us back to God so that we find our delight in him instead of finding it in anything else. And right here in this text, verse 9 and verse 10, we actually are given the ultimate reason for delighting in him. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that whether your life is going well 
or you're in the pits, you have actually tasted that the Lord is good because his incomparable grace has rescued us from the futility of our ignorance and the darkness of our sin. He has brought us into relationship with him. And whatever it is you're going through right now, you have the confidence of knowing if you belong to Jesus, whatever it is that's happening in your life will be working out for your good and for his glory. It is meant to refine you. And we know that to be the case because the cross is the definitive demonstration of the goodness of God. You can trust this God because the Son, the second person of the triune God, willingly became a man so that he may be rejected by the creatures whose life he's held in his hands. Willingly suffered the Father's wrath for you and me so that he may die and in dying secure our forgiveness and reconcile us to God. And he rose again so that you and I would be declared righteous in union with him. That's the grace that deserves overflowing praise that we proclaim his excellencies. As, remember, as we remember verse 10, outside of Jesus, we are rejects. Once you were not a people. You are on the outside looking in, unfit to stand before the holy God. Now, we are God's cherished, chosen people. Once you had not received mercy, worthy only of damnation and condemnation, and yet now you have received mercy. He has called us to himself to be his people, and he has given us a living hope that will be consummated when Christ returns. So sure, people will reject us. Even then, let us delight in our God by declaring to them the awesomeness of our God and his magnificent grace because he is worthy. Now we're going to sing a song a very familiar song in response, Amazing Grace, but we're going to sing it a little differently. And we are actually going to sing the stanza. The final stanza that we're going to sing is going to be strange to you, perhaps, but it's actually the stanza that John Newton wrote. So we're not going to sing if, when we've been there 10,000 years. We're going to sing a different lyric. The lyric that John Newton actually wrote. And it refreshes us and reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So let's stand and sing.